So uh, today is part two of how to fight pride and pursue humility. So we're going to start off with a little bit of review. Um, the first thing we're going to review is the benefits of humility and the downfalls of pride. That's one of the things we talked about last week. Uh, we're only going to briefly review it now, but um, if you want more info on it, I would go back and listen to it on our website. Uh, number one, humility leads to wisdom. We took a look at that. Um, and, you know, similar to that, pride leads to blindness. Uh, pride leads to not being able to perceive things clearly. Um, number three, humility leads to more grace. We saw in, you know, James, God gives greater grace to the humble. So humility leads to more grace. Number four, pride damages relationships. Um, and God rewards humility. We took a look at a few verses that showed that. And number six, humility helps you have greater effectiveness for God's kingdom. So that, you know, that's reason enough to care about fighting pride and pursuing humility. And then uh, we talked about like understanding pride and humility and really getting a good understanding of what pride actually is and what humility actually is. And I gave some definitions and I would like to look at them again. Um, Pride is thinking of yourself higher, as in more important, more sufficient, or more honorable than you actually are. Or it can also be caring about yourself, as in your honor, about your honor, or about your well-being, more than is appropriate. Contrast that with humility. Humility is thinking of yourself accurately. How important, how sufficient, how honorable you are, and caring about yourself, as in your honor and your well-being, an appropriate amount. Uh, I also went into some detail to explain and defend the idea that there is a reasonable amount to care about your own honor or about what others think of you, and that it's not wrong to care. There's an appropriate amount. And if you would like more detail on that, please go listen to last week's message. So one thing I would like to um, hit on again in the review, the importance of the heart, um, specifically desire. Desire is very central to pride. Pride has a lot more to do with your desires than it does like what you think about yourself intellectually per se. Desire is the more important part. So I give the example, when the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom or who would be the greatest, they didn't have some simple intellectual misunderstanding about who was more effective. If that was it, and they didn't actually care who was greatest, they wouldn't have been fighting about it. The problem with pride isn't thinking of yourself in a misinformed manner per se. That's not the main problem. That can be part of it. But the main problem, it's wrapped up in our desires, our desiring... Um, are caring about our honor or about being the greatest more than we should. You know, they shouldn't have cared enough to fight over it. That was pride. And later today, we're going to compare this to Jesus, um, who even though he actually was more important than everybody else in existence, he came to serve. His desire was to serve. He knew he was more important than everyone else in existence. 
We'll get into that in more detail in a bit. But I, I just want to hit that point. Desire is the more important aspect of whether or not a person's proud. The second aspect of um, the importance of desire I want to look at is, you know, prideful desires can be very sneaky. Let's go to Matthew 6, 1 through 7. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty prayers as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So we see in this passage Jesus' warning about the sneakiness of, um, you know, desire to do things out of uh, wanting others to honor us. This is something, it's easy to do something, like a good thing that you should be doing, and be doing it because you want to be seen by others. And sometimes it's hard to perceive whether or not that's why you're doing it. You know, Jesus said, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. To me, I think that implies somewhat like the sneakiness of this kind of desire in our hearts. Um, but, it, you know, desire to be honored can masquerade as desire to give a lot. It can be... Masquerading his desire to serve a lot can be masquerading his desire to fast. So we need to watch out for that. But also the way to watch out for that is to, if you think you have that as a motive, don't just stop doing what you're doing because of that. That's not the way to deal with it. For one thing, like doing things changes the desires of your heart. Like, I typically don't want to wash the dishes until five minutes after I've started washing the dishes. After that, my heart towards them has changed. But it doesn't change until I start. So if you wait until you have perfect motives, you'll never have perfect motives. And you'll never want to do it. So don't do that. That is not the way to deal with that. So even if you have imperfect <laughs> motives, don't, that's no reason to quit. Um, you know, it's a reason to think about um, you know, why you're doing it. And if you feel like you are doing good deeds out of desire to be honored by others, what you need to do is just mentally affirm, I'm doing this because this is worth doing, and that's why I'm doing it. And, um, and ask God to help you, and he, he will give you grace and help change the desires of your heart. The other aspect of uh, desire for honor or proud desire that I want to look at is it can easily get out of hand. 
because, um, you know, a little bit of honor can become very addicting. Like I have, I've had this experience a number of times where I'm just going about my day. Um, I'm not having, I'm not struggling a lot with desire to be honored much that day. And then I get a few compliments and then I start really feeling good about it. And then I, I want it more. And, uh, and I, I desire that more and then I get my heart set on that. Like, enjoying honor can be really addicting. Pride is really addicting. But, um, so we have to learn how to handle honor and compliments well which we'll get to that specifically later in the series. The next part of today's sermon, I wanted to talk some about how pride is related to condemnation. And I've got uh, six points of how pride and condemnation are related. Uh, Number one, condemnation often leads to insecurity and insecurity leads to pride. If you have insecurities and don't fight against them, they'll inevitably lead to pride. Because insecurity will cause you to desire to be more honorable or to be more liked by others. And it'll cause you to desire that more than you otherwise would. I've had this, this has been like a huge part of my life because I've struggled a lot with like a lot of insecurity. Uh, it's taken me years to like kind of get over it. And, um, and it's really caused me a lot to struggle with pride, and I could tell that it was. Because it made me care much more than I otherwise would about what other people think. And I would think about that like all the time. And that's making me focus on myself. Insecurity that you don't fight against will inevitably lead to pride. I haven't, I've seen lots of people struggle with this and I've never seen a person where I, I haven't seen that it leads to pride to some degree. Point number two, pride generates falsely high or unreasonably high expectations, which often leads to condemnation. Um, so I, I have a few examples um, just, just to give some illustrations. So say a person is a prideful person. They think that they're the best. And since they're the best in their school, they should always be getting straight A's. Makes sense, right? They're the best. And, uh, and then they don't always get straight A's. And then they feel really bad about it. Because having unreasonably high expectations, which pride causes, can lead to condemnation. I have a second example. Um, if you're struggling with pride, it can be easy to think when looking for a job, you know, you apply for one, I'm definitely going to get this job. Like, I didn't put much work into it, but of course they're going to pick me. Like, I'm great. <laughs> and, uh, and then they don't. And then you're discouraged and you're feeling condemned and shameful. <laughs> because unreasonably high expectations lead to condemnation. Point number three, 
Pride makes you think of yourself apart from grace, which leads to condemnation. So when you're proud, you don't think about your need for grace. You think as if you don't need grace. And if you think, of, if you, think you don't need grace, you're going to think of yourself apart from God's grace. God's grace isn't something you'll think about when you, think of, when you evaluate yourself. And, you know, eventually you're going to get hit with reality and realize you're a sinful person. And if you're a sinful person without God's grace, um, you know, condemnation is what's up. All right, number four. Condemnation comes from focusing on you instead of focusing on God or others. It comes from being self-focused. So focusing on God helps fight against condemnation because the more you think about God or focus on God or spend time worshiping God, the easier it is to see his grace. But the more we focus on ourselves, the easier it is to see our sinfulness. Is this still working? Yeah. Um, I think even focusing on yourself instead of others. Focusing on others can help with condemnation. Like if, if you're struggling with condemnation and you're just constantly, like your head is revolving around your life, you're going to think about your own sinfulness and how much you keep failing to meet God's standards. But if, you know, if your heart is concerned with other people, how can you serve them? What do they need? What are their needs? How can you help them grow? How can you bless them? How can you encourage them? If your heart's more wrapped up in other people, uh, you won't be focusing as much on your own sinfulness. If you're so focused on your own sinfulness that you're not, your heart's not wrapped up in the lives and well-being of others, you're focused too much on yourself and own sinfulness. When people are struggling with condemnation, sometimes I tell them, you know, how much do you serve others? Because that helps. Focusing on yourself instead of God or others just leads to condemnation. Point number five. Pride tempts you to not want to accept the grace of God. Let's take a look at John 13, 3 through 8 in the Common English Bible. Jesus knew the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the table and took off his robes. Picking up a linen towel, he tied it around his waist. Then, pouring water into a wash basin, he began to wash the disciples' feet drying them with the towel he was wearing. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will understand later. No, Peter said, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you have no place with me. Pride 
tempts us to not want to accept the grace of God. And if we don't, you know, the bigger point here, accepting the grace of God, accepting the gospel, if we don't accept God's grace, we have no place with him. And, you know, this, this goes further than when we first receive the gospel. We need to choose to receive God's grace daily. It's a daily decision you have to make. Don't go telling God, oh no, God, you, you don't want to wash my feet. I, I know that you don't. Don't tell yourself that. It's an easy thing to do. Don't convince yourself to not receive God's grace. A person can only convince themselves to not receive God's grace by focusing on themselves instead of God. But it's an easy thing to do. We have to choose to accept God's grace, which is a blow towards our pride, because we have to admit that we need it. Number six, last point for this one. If you refuse to hear and believe what God says about you, that's one of the highest forms of pride that there is. So God thinks gracious thoughts towards you. I'm not going to, you know, go into exhaustive detail to explain this. I'm just going to read two verses. So let's read Romans 8, verse 1. There is, not, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So that was definitive. It just says it point blank. It's black and white. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's also take a look at Romans 8.33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Are you going to bring a charge against God's elect? If you're a Christian, you're God's elect. You don't get to bring a charge against God's elect. It's a rhetorical question. No one gets to bring a charge against God's elect because God is the one who justifies. That means nobody gets to bring a charge against God's elect. That means you don't get to bring a charge against God's elect. So if you're struggling with condemnation, Romans 8.33 Don't be so proud that you disagree with God or refuse to hear what he has to say about you. And if you have ongoing struggles with this, I would encourage you to listen or re-listen to the series I did, Dealing with Your Own Objections About God's Love for You. All right, next section. So last week, um, I said that this week I would try to better define an appropriate amount to care. Because, you know, you can care too much about your own well-being or your own honor, and that's pride. Um, but there's also an appropriate amount or a reasonable amount to care. And I wanted to bother to define that a bit better. 
So point number one, it's all very relational. I would even bother to call it relative. One desire is always relative to another. You can't, as much as I love the metric system, you can't measure desire with the metric system. You measure one desire against another. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. You could think of that, desire your neighbor's well-being as you desire your own well-being. He didn't say have, you know, numeric amount XYZ of desire for one or the other. He says, have as much desire for your neighbor's well-being as you do for your own. So desire is always relative or relational. If a person cares very little about themselves, but they care even less about others, then they're a proud person. If a person cares very little about themselves, but they care even less about others, then they're proud because in, in their hearts, to some degree, they believe they're more important. Again, we're going to compare this with Jesus in a second, who's the ultimate example of humility, and he cared about his own well-being. You know, he, didn't want, he wanted to avoid suffering if possible and where possible. He prayed that if possible, he wouldn't have to suffer the cross. He cared about his own well-being, but he cared about others more. Let's take a look at Philippians chapter 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I do want to point something out about this real quick. Um, so it says, count one another more significant than yourselves. That doesn't mean we need to all intellectually think that everyone's more important than we are. For one thing, that would be a contradiction, because that makes everyone more important than everyone, and that doesn't work. Secondly, Jesus knew he was God. So he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he was very much aware that he was God. That's why they killed him. It's because he knew he was God, and he said he was. He very much knew he was God, and in spite of that, he cared about others more. That's humility. That's true humility. That was the mind that was in Christ. He didn't try to, he didn't lie to himself about being God or being equal with God. He didn't push it out of his mind or deny it or lie to himself. God's a God of truth, and if we think how God wants us to think, it will always be aligned with truth. But he was very much humble. He was the most humble person ever. Because even if we were perfectly sanctified, we could never be as humble as Christ because we could never step down as much as he stepped down. 
He knew he was more important than we are, and he died for us. Uh, the next point I want to hit on, we need to care about God an appropriate amount. Because desire is always contrasted against other desires. You know, some of us are more emotional than others or more expressive than others, I should say. And if you're very, very expressive and like, you know, you, you found a penny and you're just ecstatic over it because you're so happy about that, you know, that's fine as long as you're equally happy about good things happening to other people. But if you're way more happy about your own well-being, that means you care way more about your own well-being. And a person could be a very pretty reserved person, and you know, they could win the lottery and just keep a straight face. But if you care more about other people, that's where it is. Desire is always contrasted against other desires. They're all relative, they're all relational. That's how you measure them. Um, but anyways, caring about God. We should care about God more than anything. I'm not going to belabor this point too much because it's fairly obvious. Um, but let's look at Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. God is more important than anything, and if we care about ourselves more than God, that's extremely prideful. Even if we care about ourselves very little. If we care about ourselves very little, and we care about God even less than we care about ourselves more than we care about God. And that's extremely prideful. If we care about our own honor more than God's honor, that is very prideful. We should care nowhere near as much about our honor as we do about God's honor. And it's a trap, it's a trap any of us could easily fall into because it's easy to intellectually agree that God is more important than you are, but to not live like it. But this is really one of the most central aspects of humility, how much you value God and how much you value others. Again, Jesus believed he was God but he valued others more. And he was right, obviously, he was God. All right, so I want to try to kind of very specifically in like a written out manner define how much is an appropriate amount to care. Uh, so since desires measured relationally anyways, there's kind of a range that you get. You could care too much and you could care too little. And as long as you're not, as long as you're not at one of those points, then you're within the appropriate amount. So let's talk about how much is appropriate to care about your own well-being. Let's start with uh, not too much. So um, not more than you care about loving or obeying God and not more than you care about others. So if you could care about yourself like 
as much as possible, I suppose. But if you care about others even more, or God more, or and God more, then it's reasonable. And let's also talk about not caring too little. You shouldn't think of yourself as worth less than others, or your well-being is worth less than theirs. But you should, you should make the choice to value their well-being above your own, as Christ did for you. It's about choosing to care. It's about how much you care. You should also remember, uh, God always desires your well-being, and he never stops desiring your well-being. Therefore, you should desire it too. You know, it's all relational. Love uh, your neighbor as yourself. But uh, if, you, if you love yourself very little, and you love your neighbor just as much, you know, that's good, you love your neighbor, but you still desire their well-being very little at that point. So it, it is appropriate, it is correct, it is right to care about yourself. Also, how much you care about your honor, how well you think about yourself and how well others think of you. Um, not too much and not too little. We can go to the next slide for that one. Um... How much would be too much? You should not care about your own honor anywhere near as much as you care about the honor of God. They should come nowhere close to each other. Nor should you care about your own honor more than you care about the honor or well-being of others. And I would also add thirdly, if you care what others think of you enough that it fills you with fear or anxiety, then you care too much. But if it's less than those three things, then I wouldn't say it's too much. I'd say it probably fits in within reasonable. Let's also talk about what not caring too little might be. I think, you know, I mentioned last time, I think you should avoid not caring at all what others think because to do so would be to devalue fellowship. That doesn't mean you have to care what everyone thinks. Like, I don't care what the Domino's delivery guy thinks. But I'm also not trying to, like, become friends with him today. So I very much care what my wife thinks of me. Because that, that relationship's very important to me. Is that what you say the difference there is motive? Um, it kind of. But I think kind of at the end of the day, whether people realize it or not, the the motive behind all caring what other people think of you probably comes down to um, desire for fellowship. I don't know. I might be wrong about that. I think a lot of times it does, and we don't realize it. All right, so we've got about 15 minutes left. I'm pretty excited for this next part. We won't finish this part today. This will continue into next week. But I've got a list called areas we need to see accurately. I've got nine of them. So, you know, pride and humility, it's about thinking about yourself accurately, right? So it'd be helpful to have that broken down and do a bit more detail of specific areas to think about yourself accurately in. 
you know, that would help you cover your bases. And, you know, there are some areas that are just, like, important to think about yourself accurately. Yeah. What? David, can you go back to the last slide for a second? All right. So I really think this list of nine things will be very helpful. You should write them down, you should think about them, and you should look out for inaccurate thinking in each of these areas. Like if a person had accurate thinking in all nine of these areas, they'd be doing good. They'd be going places. <laughs> but we'll probably only get into two of them today. I'm also going to try to go into somewhat detail into each of them, but it definitely won't be exhaustive detail. So number one, how much you need God. This is probably the most important area. This is one of the most dangerous types of pride you could have, is to think that you don't need God. I would much rather have inaccurate thoughts about how good of a rock climber I am than to have inaccurate thoughts about how much I need God. <laughs> I, I was thinking about <laughs> I, I, I don't do rock climbing very much <laughs> I do just want to say before we get into details about this one if um if thinking that you don't need God leads to pride, then one of the best things you could possibly do to pursue humility is to seek to understand and remind yourself exactly how much you do need God. Even if you missed all the other areas, if, if a person just knew exactly how much they needed God, that'd be like leaps and bounds worth of growth in humility. Anyways, let's, let's get into some detail. Uh, ways you need God. I've got five ways you need God. Um, his fellowship. We need fellowship with God to be truly fulfilled in life. That's a need. Without it, we won't be truly fulfilled. It says in Psalm 16, verse 11, in God's presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forever. I've heard so many testimonies of people who just had this restlessness that they couldn't define until they became a Christian and then it went away. That's not the case for everyone, but I've heard it from several people. We only have true fulfillment in fellowship with God. That's a need. We need his fellowship. It's an area we are dependent upon him. We were designed for it. Number two, we need his empowerment. We need his empowerment for success, for the things he's called us to, to make a difference for his kingdom, to really succeed at our jobs. Like, even if there's something that, like, doing in your own strength, you could do okay. Anything that you could do okay in your own strength, you could do really, really good with the power of God. Amen. Peter was a good fisherman. But, you know, some days he caught nothing. But with the power of God, on a day where you would catch nothing, you can catch 5,000 fish. 
So even in areas where you might think, eh, I can kind of do this on my own, you do way, way better with God's empowerment. We need God's empowerment for success in any endeavor, to succeed like we should. Even if we could achieve a little bit without, you know, his empowerment. Uh, we need his empowerment for daily sanctification. This one's a big one. My daily sanctification isn't going anywhere without God's power. Some days it feels like it doesn't go anywhere anyways. But, but those days I'm probably not really relying on God like I should. But we need God's empowerment. We need to see how much we need God's empowerment. Number three, we need God's wisdom. We need his wisdom for major choices. We need his wisdom for minor choices. We need his wisdom for moral wisdom for sanctification. You know, without the word of God, I want to know what's ethically correct and what's not. I want to know how to make good decisions in life. I, if it weren't for the wisdom I get from God's word, I'd still be, you know, playing video games and skateboarding all day. God's word gives a great amount of wisdom. And, you know, God by his spirit gives us wisdom, especially for major life decisions. But we need his wisdom, and we need to be aware of how much we need his wisdom. Another one, uh, number four, his provision. We need his provision. Some of these, you know, God gives us, and it can be easy to miss that God even does these things. You know, day in, day out, I eat this, I eat that. I don't really think about how God gives me food. These can be easy to miss that these even happen. But they're worth thinking about. We need God's provision. God provides food. God gives us shelter. God gives us deliverance. Those are all ways in which God provides for us, and we need that. We need those from God. Another area we need God, we need his protection. Number five, his protection. You know, God gives us physical protection. A lot of times, I don't think we know about it, but I'll get that. we'll get more into that detail in a bit. God gives us spiritual protection. You know, God sends angels to protect his people from demons. And moreover, God gives us authority over demons. One of the best ones, God protects us from ourselves and our stupidity. Let's take a look at Exodus 13, uh, 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for he said, lest the people change their minds and see war and return to Egypt. I doubt the people knew that God was like looking out for this. I think there's plenty of times throughout my days that there's stupid things that I would do that God protects me from doing. He doesn't always choose to do that. Sometimes he allows me to make my stupid decisions that I make. But I think there's plenty of times where he intervenes to protect me from making stupid decisions, and I simply never find out about it. It's the blessedness of being protected by a sovereign God. Without God's protection, our lives would be a mess. Like God... I think to some degree God protects everyone, even like non-believers and people who hate him. I think their lives would be way worse without 
him choosing to only let so many things happen in their lives. I wish I could actually communicate how much we need God in the... Eh, that's a later point. I skipped something. Uh, let's take a look at two verses more about how God protects us. Uh, Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. Um, where did I put that? Oh, yeah. So this is, um, you know, Jesus talking to Peter right before he, Jesus is about to be crucified. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. This is just a verse that shows that how God's sovereignty protects our lives. Satan had to demand permission. Satan needed permission to do anything to Peter. Let's look at a second verse that shows that principle. Let's look at Job 1, 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job and that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around all he has in his house on every side? So that's worth pointing out, there was a hedge around Job and everything he had. Um, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased his land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only do not stretch out your hand... Um, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So again, God in this instance gave Satan permission to do something to Job. Satan needed permission. God is sovereign. God's sovereignty is not interrupted. It is not challenged. I think God protects us like this in tons of ways we never see and never hear about and won't hear about until we meet God um, in eternity. But we need God's protection. So again, I wish I could communicate deeper how much we need God in these areas, uh, but some of it you kind of just have to learn by experience. It's, it's easy to miss how much you need God in some of these areas if you don't even realize he's doing this for you. It's easy to not realize the protection God gives you, the um, the provision God gives you. It can even be easy to miss his empowerment. Sometimes we like do things that are successful because of God and we don't realize that it's because of him that they succeeded. So we should ask God to open our eyes to how much we need him. This was just a very brief touch on how much we need God. If you want to know it, if you want to think even more accurately about this, please study it out for yourself. This was a very brief mention. Uh, that's about all we have time for for this time. I'm going to save the second one for next time.
So next time, we're going to look at eight areas where we need to think of ourselves actually. Well, actually, we're going to look at nine, but we already looked at one. One second. Um, the first one being how much we need God. But pride and humility are very relational. I'm going to close in prayer, and then Greg had something he wanted to add after that. Um, Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we can come to hear from you, to hear from your word. We pray that you would give us the grace to be level-headed in how much we care about ourselves and how much we care about others, and especially how much we care about you. We pray that we would think accurately and we'd be truly humble like Christ was, valuing you as most important and valuing others above ourselves. We thank you for your grace in these areas, and amen.